Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. I'm incredibly excited to introduce today's guest for the podcast. It's someone who is arguably one of the world's leading researchers into gut health and the microbiome with a particular interest into the guts, the brain and our stress levels. He's published over 400 articles and he's co-author of the book, The Psychobiotic Revolution, Mood, Food and the New Science of the Gut-Brain Connection. He's won numerous awards. He's done a couple of TED Talks. It's Professor John Cryan. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So, John, I have recently realized that a lot of the work I've been looking at with respect to the microbiome for the last sort of five or 10 years and been lecturing on, actually, you are behind, and you, you and your lab are behind a lot of that research. So it's an incredible pleasure for me to have you on the podcast. Um, I thought I might start by asking you, John, you know, how did you come to being an expert and actually spending a lot of your research time studying the gut microbiome? Well, that's a really interesting question in many ways. Uh, so for my entire research career, I've been focused on, on trying to understand how stress affects the brain and affects the body. And I'm a neuroscientist, so it may seem very strange that as a neuroscientist, I'm, I've really started to work uh, heavily on what's going on in the gut. And um, when I moved uh, to, back home to Ireland uh, now 13 years ago, I started to collaborate with people here who were very interested in uh, stress-related gut disorders like irritable bowel syndrome. Now, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, is a very common and unloved disorder in many ways, um, but it's very clear that it's a disorder of the gut-brain axis and that it's very much um, flare-up in it can be driven by stress. And so understanding it mechanistically was very much driven around understanding how stress affects the body in, in, in a general way. And together with my colleague, Ted Dynan, who's the head of psychiatry here, we developed a research program around uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And one of the things we found was that in an animal model uh, of IBS, um, which is where animals are separated from their mothers during early life, uh, that when these animals grow up, we showed over a decade ago now that their microbiome was quite different. And that was one of the key experiments for us because it's telling us that stress is affecting the microbiome. We followed that up with studies in other animal models of stress showing that there are clear ways that the um, microbiome is influenced by stress. But that could be epiphenomenological. It could be down to many things. And it was kind of one of these look-see experiments that, that we did at the time. And, uh, but it got us thinking, well, what if it's more than that? What if it really could be something that we could harness to manage or treat this stress-related disorder? So then we started looking at other ways to really investigate, you know, could there be a clear 
mechanistic relationship between stress and the microbiome. And so we looked then in animals that lack the microbiome. So these are what we call germ-free animals. And um, because in biology and engineering in general, if you want to know if something is involved, one of the easiest ways is to take it out and see what happens. And when we take out uh, microbes from um, animals, uh, basically these animals are much more stress uh, sensitive. Uh, their uh, hormonal response to stress is exaggerated. So that data, and there was work coming from Japan that supported that, uh, and our own data showing that stress affects the microbiome, it, the story started to come together. And then wow. the final two parts of the puzzle were then we basically hypothesized that the brain areas that are regulating the stress response and important for emotional um, um, maturation and, and neurodevelopment, that they would be out of kilter in these germ-free mice. And, and so we started investigating that, as did groups in Sweden and Canada, and we all showed the same things, that, that basically we need the microbes for normal brain development and for mounting the appropriate stress response. And the final part then was, could we target the microbiome uh, by certain ways, either by individual strains of bacteria or by um, diets that would support the development of beneficial microbes, could we reverse the effects of stress, either in early life or in, in adulthood? And, and we've done quite a number of experiments to show that. Wow. And by 2011, then, we, we had shown that in a mouse model, and, and that helped us really uh, to uh, confirm that the microbiome is not just uh, uh, an epiphenomenon, but a really core part of how our body uh, is programmed to deal with stress and we're still working on the mechanisms involved and of course on the translation into human uh, studies wow well, i mean it's some story so i think it's worth right at the start of this conversation just clarifying for those listeners who are not familiar with the microbiome we're talking about this collection of bugs you know bacteria fungi viruses many more that, that actually live inside us uh, and their collective genetic material. And so it's incredible for me that you say you, we need these microbes to mount the appropriate stress response. I don't think when people think of stress, and obviously you, you're a neuroscientist who wanted to study stress, and I suspect that when you started studying stress, you probably didn't think you'd end up in the gut. No, because like as you know, in medicine, we love to compartmentalize uh, disciplines. And I work in a medical school. So, so you know, neuroscience is generally focused on what's going on from the neck upwards. And the disciplines of microbiology and neuroscience, whether it's neurology or psychiatry, rarely have, you know, uh, intersected. There's been some exceptions when we try and understand what syphilis was doing to the brain 100 years ago or what the HIV virus was doing more recently. But on the whole, these disciplines are very different. Uh, but the important thing about stress to remember is that stress doesn't just affect a few neurons within the hippocampus of the brain. It actually affects the entire body. And so I'm largely talking about chronic stress or traumatic stress, but it, it creates a whole body syndrome that has implications for what's going on in our gut, in our cardiovascular system, in our metabolic health, as well as uh, brain health. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point because uh, when we think about stress, I think when 
you know, a lot of doctors, but a lot of the lay public think about stress. We think about this, just the signals coming into our brain and how we perceive things. We're not thinking about how it can impact, you know, our guts, our hearts, but also, you know, type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is, you know, reaching epidemic proportions these days. It's just getting a bigger and bigger problem for society. And a lot of people are not aware that actually our stress levels and chronic stress can also impact our blood sugar levels, which is just incredible. Absolutely. And it's closely intertwined with our immune system and the inflammatory aspects, which are also out of kilter in, in type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And, and I think something you said, uh, John, really is, is something that I really resonate with, which is this whole idea that you know, we are quite compartmentalized in the way we're trained at medical school, but also the way that we are conditioned to do research for many years. And I get, you know, I understand where that has come from. As a GP, the the problem I find with that is that so many of the problems that are walking into my surgery door every day are multifactorial. And actually, it's very hard to put them in a neat little box. So you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome, you know, IBS which, you know, I think some studies have shown affect maybe 20% of the population, uh, you know. It's, Absolutely, It's yeah. just incredible. One in five of us are going to get IBS at some point. Um, I am finding more and more now, I'm taking a multifactorial approach with these patients. I'm changing multiple things. Has your research backed that up? Because I guess a lot of your research probably has to look at one particular area um, so that we can understand the mechanism of how something works. But then how do we translate that into real life patients? Sure, and that's always a challenge. Some some parts of it are, that we can do and we can control in, in a laboratory setting is looking at what is the driving factors uh, underneath it. And so early life adversity is one of the key risk factors that we know is present in IBS patients, but also in depression, etc. And to understand what this stress in early life is doing to multi-systems is really important and that these systems all talk to each other. And so if we are only focusing on one readout, we sometimes could miss uh, specific things. So we try and uh, build that into our research program, both in our animal studies, but also now in our human studies, where we're looking at cognitive uh, stress responsivity. We're looking at the immune system. We're looking at, at changes in the microbiome. So we're trying to have a holistic view uh, uh, on what could be uh, gone awry, um, but w many of the driving factors could, could be single incidents or single events could be an infection it could be a, a specific stressor uh, early in life yeah absolutely okay so i think it's probably worth going going back and uh, sort of looking at why do we have a stress response you know because you, you mentioned clearly it was chronic stress or traumatic stress but i think it's probably important that we emphasize that actually stress and, and the stress response is absolutely necessary and served an important role for us in evolution Absolutely. It's, it, it's a clear way that our body has in dealing with a, with a form of threat or a change in what we call homeostasis. So uh, we have a very well-wired system, uh, both within our brain and, and how the brain talks to, to, to the body, to be able to alert us, to sharpen our cognition, to basically get us stopping doing things that are irrelevant at that time. So that's why digestion is, uh, there's no point having a meal if you're being you know, chased by a, a tiger or something. So uh, these are very closely wired together. But the problem is when we get chronic stress, 
the, these systems also go out of uh, uh, kilter. And so um, that's why it doesn't just affect the brain, but it affects uh, the digestive tract. It affects the reproductive tract, it, uh, hormones. It affects um, all aspects of the immune system because our immune system is sharpened during a stress to deal with any uh, invasion of pathogens or anything else. Uh, and so... Uh, Understanding that, I think, is, has been one of the key uh, functions in stress research over the last two or three decades, and that we we, we can have an what we call an allostatic load. Basically, uh, uh, the more load we add onto our system, the more it's going to be weighed down and, and be more vulnerable uh, as we move forward. Yeah. And we're particularly interested in stress at key times across the lifespan. So we're interested, as I mentioned, in early life, but also we feel that in adolescence and in old age, um, that, that stress can do different things as the brain is changing across the lifespan, as the gut is changing across the lifespan, and can interfere with this gut-brain axis in different ways. And then one of the other key exciting points of this whole stress field right now is uh, why, um, why do certain people not get stress-related disorders? And this idea of resilience. So it's not just susceptibility, uh, but, 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 but resilience uh, needs to be built in as well. And on resilience, would you say that having a healthy gut microbiome helps provide us with that resilience, that buffer against stresses. And, and, and as part of answering that, could you also maybe define what we currently think a healthy gut microbiome looks like? Okay, there are two really intriguing questions there. So the first is, can our microbiome help buffer resilience? Well, that's something we're really working on right now. My gut feeling is that it really can, uh, but we need to develop more data to, to, to look at that. And then we have, we have experiments running right now, both in laboratory settings uh, and in, um, in animals to really test that out. Um, working in an educational uh, uh, institution allows us to chronically stress our students all the time uh, by putting them through exams. So we're looking at whether the exam stress period uh, is having an effect on the microbiome and whether there's a resilience or a susceptibility to that uh, can be built up. So we can't say for sure yet that a stronger... No, it's too early. I mean, yeah. you, you, we have to remember that, that, that like, until about five years ago, uh, people in the stress field were ignoring anything to do with what was going on in the microbiome. Um, so it's still very early days, but I think you know we're we're, we're developing enough data now to, to really begin to think that this is a very logical and very important aspect of resilience. What what have you seen so far, John? If you don't mind me asking, that makes you feel? I mean. You mentioned your gut feeling, which is quite interesting how I think humans have intuitively known for many years um, how various things affect us. You know, the word gut feeling says it already. It's, it's already in our vernacular that we know that when, you know, that we know that we can feel things in our gut. That sort of is, a, I guess, a very non-scientific clue. Um, but I wonder, how, what have you seen so far that actually makes you feel actually maybe a healthy gut is going to buffer us against stress? You know, what are some of those clues in the research so far? Right. So I guess some of the key things that we found is that when we look at how in animal studies, for example, when we look at how we stratify animals based on their microbiomes, 
different composition of the microbiome, we were able to correlate the changes that we see uh, with um, uh, specific stress-related responses. So we were interested in how the respiratory system responds to a stressor, and we found that correlated very well with certain microbial species. We also were interested in how um, the um, cortisol response, the equivalent in animals, how that responds uh, to a stressor, uh, and, and we were able to make direct correlations there. Wow. But some of the best uh, data is emerging now also in human studies, where we're, uh, we've, for example, given uh, healthy volunteers a specific bifidobacterium, and we put them through a stressful laboratory testing uh, scenario. And in the, in the lab, we stress uh, people very ethically, but we stress <laughs> them in, in two ways. One is, is subjecting them to what we call a cold presser test, where their uh, uh, arm is, is sub, uh, submerged in an ice-cold bucket of water, and then there's someone watching them, so to give a psychological compo component to it, and they feel pretty stressed, and they mount a stress response, and we, we have a variety of biological uh, skin conductance and, and uh, paper-based psychological profiling we can do. And uh, the other way is we can make them do a um, what's called a Trier social stress test, where they have to basically prepare for uh, their uh, dream job and give an interview in an interview style situation. Um, and in both of these, we were able to mount a very nice acute stress response. But what we found was, and this is a study we published uh, just over over a year ago now, we, we showed that a bifidobacterium, if it was given beforehand, was able to uh, blunt this stress response. Wow. And this is in healthy volunteers. So that was quite remarkable uh, finding. And um, I, I think that, you know, that's very exciting. And, and there's a number of studies now emerging with different strains of uh, probiotics or, or combinations of probiotics that are showing this. And um, I think that that's very exciting. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that most strains will do nothing. Yeah. And uh, we need to do the science behind it because there's a lot of what I was. It's, it's easy to overhype this field. It's very easy to uh, assume that all probiotics are the same, uh, and uh, so. Um, but they're not. But we're very. We think it's really uh, exciting area, and we've coined this phrase um, psychobiotic, and, uh, and 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 that we feel is a targeted intervention of the microbiome, usually a probiotic or or a pre. Prebiotic and uh, a prebiotic, by definition, is basically a dietary uh, substance that bolsters the the production of the beneficial microbes. So it's kind of like a fertilizer. So could you give some examples for people who who are listening? What the, yeah, what they so, might look so, like? Uh, from our diet, inulin would be a really good example. From our diet, or or, or fibers. Uh, so a high fiber diet would be really good in in that regard if you can tolerate it. Uh, because there are certain situations where these are not tolerable tolerated, such as in certain. Uh, forms of IBS. Yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, when I when I've spoken about gut health in the past, and we talk about the importance of fiber and a diverse, you know, range of fibers, a lot of people also feedback saying, "Yeah, but I can't tolerate that." And I yeah. want I wonder whether we should just touch on that briefly for those people listening who might be wondering, "Yeah, that all sounds great. I've heard about fiber, but I can't manage fiber." What What would you say to those people? 
Yeah, I know it's a really good point of a, you know tolerability is an issue. What we do know is though that in, in ancestral uh, communities there, fiber intake was much much more uh, than what we uh, we take, and it was much more diverse. And I think people's view of what fiber is it can be a little bit skewed uh, that it means it's some form of bran or whatever else. But there's lots of really good green fibers in vegetables, and there's many sources of fiber uh, than some of the traditional ones as well. But there are there are other ways to, to basically have a uh, to really uh, bolster the microbiomes. We know that, for example, uh, a Mediterranean diet in particular uh, has a lot of the um, components that will also uh, uh, allow for a beneficial microbiome uh, to actually, I would say, prosper uh, overall. Um, and, and inulin and other inulin-like uh, uh, substances are really good uh, and are found in lots of different uh, uh, vegetables. Um, yeah. But so, uh, you know, I, without going into dietary uh, situations per se, but I think what we're going to have is in the whole field of nutritional psychiatry moving forward is that we, we will be able to target individuals with specific diets that will A, suit their symptoms, B, suit their microbiomes, uh, and, and, and hopefully relieve some of their underlying uh, pathology. Yeah, th thanks, John. I mean, I think as a, as a clinician myself, I think what what I have seen is that, you know, you mentioned these ancestral diets. We know that, you know, communities like the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, for example, you know, I've read maybe have 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day. And yeah. the the average Westerner probably maybe 15 or 20 grams, or certainly a lot less, than, a lot less yeah. than what these communities were having and what they could actually tolerate. And my take on it is that something has happened to our guts, you know, with, and we'll no doubt explore this as part of this conversation, such that the resilience there, that the, you know, the composition of our gut microbiome is, has been significantly affected. So some of us can no longer tolerate those fibers because we've we've in some ways got a, a less robust gut. And, you know, I did speak to a dietitian a few uh, podcasts ago who um, specializes in IBS and she spoke a bit about the low FODMAP diet, which is something that often people do with nutritional professionals when they take out some of these fibers or these foods that actually they can't tolerate. But that really isn't meant to be a long-term thing. It's just a short-term thing, uh, you know, as a tool to relieve symptoms. But ultimately, we want to sort of improve the health of the gut so that long-term people might be able to tolerate those those fibers i mean certainly that's my take on it so far absolutely yeah so it's absolutely. you know we've we've got to recognize that just, our guts just aren't what they used to be and the, you know i i remember reading uh, martin blaze's book uh, missing microbes a few years ago just being fascinated by how much of that diversity that we have lost i, I wonder whether we you know i'm not sure if we I keep probably moving you off track, John, but I wonder if we could maybe just very clearly state what does the research tell us so far about a healthy gut microbiome? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I mean, the conundrum we have in the microbiome field is 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 really defining what a normal microbiome is. We all think we're normal, so it's obviously our own microbiome, uh, but my microbiome is going to be different to yours, it's going to be different to all of the listeners, um, and we haven't really worked out what, you know, what are the essential components of that uh, microbiome. We know that in adulthood that it, diversity is key. Um, so a, a diverse microbiome, uh, which is generally driven by a diverse diet, is seen to be a good 
thing. However, that's not the case in infancy, where in, uh, in infancy we see that, that um, breastfed, vaginally born infants have a, actually a less diverse microbiome. So, so that only happens in, in adulthood when things have stabilized. And uh, so we know that the diversity of our microbiomes generally in the Western world has uh, is significantly less than that of uh, these hunter-gatherer type populations, that we have extinguished many of the microbiome uh, components that our ancestors would have had. And it's intriguing to think about this from an inflammation point of view, because uh, chronic inflammatory diseases um, that are so ripe in today's society uh, are absent in these uh, ancestral um, uh, communities. And we think that could be due to um, the microbiome. Indeed, people are associating this more and more. But we don't know yet that, you know, what we need to get to be the ideal. If, if I map my microbiome today, I don't know whether how that will be, uh, whether that's a normal or not. What we do know is in certain disease states, such as in inflammatory bowel diseases or, or in, in metabolic disease or obesity, et cetera, we know the microbiome is quite different. Uh, and so that's all we can say, it's different. And we probably don't want to have a microbiome that looks like that. Um, but where I see this moving is that it's, it's gonna be very uh, a key area in precision and personalized medicine. Whereas as an individual, my microbiome might be different to yours, but, but in terms of I can track it as, we, as I age and as I go through different diseases or, and I, I hopefully be able to see whether there are signs or changes in the microbiome that might uh, predict or at least help monitor how um, I'm going to respond to certain treatments or whatever uh, as I age. And then that's my prediction with the microbiome more than anything else. Do you, do you mean do you mean a bit like we we all have blood tests now? Do you think there will be a point in the future where we all might have our microbiome tested as a sort of baseline to see what we need to improve on? I really think so. I really wow. think so. And, and uh, I, as a GP, I think this will be part of your reality uh, within the next five or so years because the costs are coming down. The knowledge about what it means is, is going up. And so we're able to use large data sets like the um, American Gut Project, which published a huge paper last week uh, outlining you know, what the American microbiome looks like. And if you have enough metadata, so information, about po at a population level, you can start to ascribe changes. And there they were able to look at specific bacteria that were uh, implicated in certain uh, uh, mental diseases and particularly in relation to depression. So we're beginning to see more and more of this. I, I, I want to move on to uh, mental health in just a second. But I, I tell you, the thing that's fascinated me the most over probably the last five or 10 years of really, you know, trying to read up as much as I can uh, in, in this area is... The microbiome appears to sit at the intersection of so many different disease states that it's, you know, I, I know we don't want to sort of over-egg it. We don't want, you know, we're waiting for research uh, to confirm a lot of the suspicions. But, it, you know, even in something like type 2 diabetes, for example, which, you know, a lot of people are, you know, everyone's talking about sugar. And of course, sugar is a significant component of that. No, I've I've read a lot of animal data. I've seen studies, I think, from 2007, 2013, where, you know, when they introduced lipopolysaccharide, which is a, it's a substance we all have in our guts on the on the on the you know on the coat of, of our gram-negative bacteria, when that then but when it enters our body, 
uh, on our bloodstream, that can have a negative impact on mental health. It can have a negative impact on the way uh, blood sugar is, 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 is sort of controlled in the body. It can cause insulin resistance, all kinds of things. It's, it's very hard not to feel that once we understand the gut microbiome more and more, we'll see that that is really the intersection point for many different conditions. Absolutely. But, you know, you could have a cynical view on that, too. And people have often addressed this to me, like, is there anything that the microbiome is not involved in? Because, you know, uh, it becomes uh, an issue there. But my response is always this, is that we have to remember that the microbes were there first. And there has never been a time where our brain or our body has existed without signals coming from microbes. So if we understand and can step back and, and not be so human cell centric and try and think of it from an evolutionary perspective, we have co-evolved with these microbial friends. And they are, uh, have a, a helped us benefit from many, many things. Wow, they came first. So if, if we take what you know, Marcy Blazer talks about missing microbes and your research is showing if the microbes came first and then we evolved with those microbes, I guess in the last 50 years, because of modern living and a lot of modern practices, we're starting to decimate the populations of those microbes. So arguably, we're now entering a time where when maybe for the first time in our evolutionary history, we might be living without the presence of certain microbes. Wow, that's that's an incredible thought, John. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. You mentioned right at the start about the gut-brain axis. And I think it's, you know, I'd love to sort of delve into that a little bit. It's about, you know, what is the gut-brain axis? You know, um, I think many of us know that when we're stressed, that can have an impact on our gut. I've got many patients who tell me that when work stress gets too much, even if they don't have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, they find that their their stool is often a bit looser, which is just incredible. I've heard that many times in my practice. But I think we're also finding out now that actually what we do with our guts can also send signals back up to our brain. So I just wonder if you could clarify what is the gut-brain axis? Yeah, so the gut-brain axis is not a new concept at all. It's We've known about it for uh, you know hundreds of years, but it's only in the last, probably since the advent of... Um, brain imaging, that we began to really see that stimulation of the gut could actually directly influence what was going on in the brain. And uh, uh, we're working out all the time the main pathways of communication and and how important they are for uh, maintaining this homeostasis, this this sense of, uh, of equilibrium, if you want, that the body needs to be in all the time. And in the uh, the most studies in gut brain axis are actually focused around food intake because we food intake is actually quite a complex behavior we take it for granted but uh, it's driven by signals from our gut to our brain to basically say eat now and um, and this is there's lots of different hormones involved in in that regulation um, but also the, the and, and so that's well known and that's been studied for a long time and then we have what's called the enteric nervous system which is the, the often referred to as the second brain and we have more neurons in our enteric nervous system than we do in our spinal cord wow. and this is 
this really second brain has a lot of power. It controls, you know, fundamental processes like motility and uh, uh, permeability and how the digestive digestion works. But we're beginning to see more and more that it's also involved uh, in signaling directly to the brain and how uh, how the brain responds to different stimuli in general. And also it, it, the uh, protocol between the microbes and uh, the which are in the lumen of the gut they often are able to send signals that can activate the enteric nervous system, which in turn can activate other nerves that can communicate with the brain. So understanding gut-brain axis is really important for a variety of different diseases, ranging uh, from uh, GI disturbances like irritable bowel syndrome, but all, even other uh, uh, disorders involved in complex emotional processing. Wow. I mean, that really ties in with a lot of the research that's coming out now about how our food can affect our mental health. And, you know, there was that trial from February 2017, I believe, the SMILES trial, where they showed the positive benefits of the, the modified Mediterranean diet. So I wonder if you could expand on that at all, John. Yeah, so this is a really um, fascinating study from Felice Jacka's group uh, in uh, in um, Deakin University in Australia. And uh, Felice has been a long-term uh, proponent of the relationship between uh, nutrition and mental health and has done some really classical epidemiology studies showing that people who have generally bad diets with processed food, that they're more likely to have uh, changes in, the, in, in their uh, mental health, negative changes, as well as even changes in the structure of the hippocampus in the brain. So the SMILES trial was her taking what she had known um, from this epidemiology way and turning it upside down and seeing, can we intervene with a good diet? Uh, and and boost what's going on. It's still a relatively small trial, and uh, it's important to note that all of the patients on it were maintained on their uh, medication or their psychotherapy. So it wasn't a replacement trial, it was an additive trial. Uh, but it was very exciting for the field because it, it, it really reinforced that nutritional interventions can support uh, uh, good mood. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it, it, it'll be a landmark study even though it's quite small uh, for the field and moving forward. But the big question that remains, and one that we uh, are actually collaborating with Felice on a little bit, is in relation to um, what is driving this uh, positive effect of diet on mood. How is this happening? And we really think that the microbiome is a key conduit in this signaling. Because not only do we have a gut-brain axis, we really now have a microbiome gut-brain axis. And you can add diet as the fourth part of that. So it's a diet microbiome gut-brain axis. And so we can, you know, through the mo modified Mediterranean diet, you're increasing the intake of essential um, uh, components that are supporting beneficial microbes. These include the omega-3 fatty acids, the polyphenols, uh, which are very heavily present in this diet. And uh, so studies need to prove this, uh, but we know the Mediterranean diet does positively affect the microbiome. Uh, we now need to make sure to join all the dots in this together to show that it is them changes that are going to have beneficial effects on mood. 
we've done other studies that have helped reinforce this conviction that we think that uh, the microbes could be very key in depression. For example, we've shown uh, that in a group of depressed patients, they have a, a much narrower diversity of the microbiome uh, than healthy controls. And then we took that microbiome from both uh, populations depressed individuals and healthy individuals and transplanted it into an animal, into a rat, and we were able to basically transfer the blues. The animal became, had a lost interest in pleasure and things it normally finds pleasurable, like sugar. It was much more anxious. It uh, had an pro-inflammatory phenotype, increases in uh, tryptophan metabolism was changed. Uh, so this was quite remarkable for us that, you know, there's something within the microbiome that's driving uh, behavioral changes so relevant to depression. Well, that's key that you're taking, you know, that shows cause and effect really, doesn't it? That you're taking that gut microbiome from someone else, you're putting it into someone who doesn't have, you know, mental health issues, and they are getting mental health issues on the back of it. This was in animals, right? This is in animals. This is in animals. We haven't done it in humans yet, uh, but uh, we don't, we, we, you know, we, we, we're more, but it, it really helps us go towards a, a causative nature of what's in the microbiome. And then other groups have done this for irritable bowel syndrome. The Canadian group of Chemek Burchek has done this in, in, in IBS very elegantly, showing that they could recapitulate an IBS phenotype in animals by taking the microbes from patients. So we're, we're, we're seeing this more and more. Yeah, it's incredible. And you know, just to expand it out, there are some studies out there which are suggesting that this could also work for things like obesity, potentially, where they've taken the microbiome from, you know, someone, uh, I think it was in animal studies, you know, an, an obese animal and transplants it into a lean one. And I think that changed their weights, changed, you know, whether that person, yeah. that animal was obese or not. And so I think whether you think this is so useful is that they help to show cause and effect potentially, because I think a lot of people for years have been saying, well, Yes, there is an association between, you know, a, a certain microbiome and a disease state, but we don't know that that's the cause. Absolutely. And we need, we need a lot of caution in this field because the correlation does not mean causation. And we, we, we can have a lot of correlative studies, uh, but they, they, we, we need to actually get back to almost to, to Cox postulates type of an approach. Yeah. John, I can tell you, when I, when I see a patient with IBS, um, you know, my practice over the last 17 years has evolved substantially to the point now where I will very rarely, if ever, just change one thing. So if I've got a patient with IBS and let's say they don't want to go down the medication route or they want to try something different, um, even if they make some changes to their diet, I find that that can often be limited unless they're also addressing their stress levels. And I guess if we think of the gut-brain axis saying there's messages going from the gut to the brain but also from the brain to the gut, that would sort of make sense, wouldn't it? That you kind of have to tackle it both ways. If you just tackle one half of that, you're not going to get a result. Absolutely. And we're understanding that m m all of the systems in the body are, 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 are so intertwined. That, and that, that gives the huge power in the microbiome because unlike your genome, which you can't do much about except blame your parents and your grandparents, your microbiome is something you have the potential to, to modify. 
And so that gives you as a, an individual or as a patient some level of um, uh, empowerment in a way. Uh, we just have to learn how to do that in an appropriate way. And that's in a way, way why we wrote that, the book that we, that we wrote this year was really to kind of give people a sense that they have the power uh, themselves to modify your microbiome, to change what's going on in relation to um, your brain and how you deal with stress. John, look, you know, you, you mentioned your book, The Psychobiotic Revolution. Um, can you sort of let the listeners know what, what sort of information might they get from reading that book? You know, is it going to be a, a walk through the science? Are there going to be some practical take-home points for them as well? What, you know, what exactly is in the book? Yeah, so the book is one that Ted Dine and I wrote with, with a science journalist, uh, um, Scott Anderson. So it's written totally for the lay person uh, and hopefully doesn't have too much jargon in it. Um, we wanted it to be as practical as possible for uh, an individual who's starting on their own journey and trying to figure out about their own gut health. And we wanted it to be informative, but we also wanted to offer some practical uh, solutions. So we devised like a new dietary psychobiotic uh, pyramid, uh, which could help people to, to you know, what foods are, that are good for supporting uh, beneficial uh, microbes and others. We also talk about how to read a, a label of a, of, a, of a specific probiotic, which would be more relevant maybe to the US readers, but it, it was important for us to give practical advice and to talk about certain foods that would be beneficial um but all of it you know needs to be taken with the with with, with, with the cautionary words that I, that I that that i always want to give is that we need to do a lot more research we need to figure out uh we would never be launching uh drugs onto the market without having clear clinical evidence that they're going to do things so we need to be very continue our skepticism about what's available because there's a lot of snake oil uh, available out there without any scientific data behind it. And so why is it that certain bacteria or prebiotics are going to have beneficial effects and others not? And that's a big part of what we're trying to get people to understand. And, and it, once they find something that works for them, to try and dig into seeing that, that, that why that's working for them, but it may not work for their partner, or it may not work for someone else because of the individual nature of the microbiome yeah yeah that's i think it's a really really important point that you raised there just for the listeners you know I've, I've been getting a lot of feedback since i launched this podcast at the start of the year but people want show notes and there are now show notes on every episode and on this one it'll be at my website drchassie.com forward slash john crying and you know i'll link to everything we speak about you know some of the papers john went through i'll try and put a link to some of those papers a link to john's book and all these kind of things that he's speaking about so do check this out after the episode if you're interested in you know delving a bit deeper into those papers um john you, you say we need to do more research and clearly we do need to do more research but a lot of the recommendations that we can make to the lay public to improve the health of their gut actually comes with no downsides and, and i guess as a clinician for me you know there's a lot we can do with our diet uh, or just you know teaching people how to manage stress a little bit better which we know is going to have a positive impact on their gut health so as a clinician i feel very comfortable making recommendations that i feel are uh, you know at the very least they're going to they're going to do no harm what are some of those top tips you know maybe three or four top tips for people that what can they do immediately after listening to this uh, to go and start improving their gut health 
absolutely. And, and I totally agree with you. <laughs> Many of these, there is no downside. So there are certain things we can do actively. Um, and then there are things we should maybe don't, which is avoid. So on the do list would be to try and increase the diversity of the diet, try and increase um, uh, fermented foods. Uh, and they can be quite exotic things like kimchi and Kefir, kefir and um, uh, kombucha, but also, you know, yogurts and sauerkraut and various things like that. We know that they're going to be, have beneficial effects on, on uh, the bacteria that we want to see uh, uh, thriving in the gut. Uh, we know that uh, increasing uh, the prebiotic, the fibers we talked about, uh, the uh, inulins, the, the, the green vegetables, uh, the, the, that's very clear uh, positive things we can do uh, to our to our, our microbiome. Then the, the don'ts is we should try and avoid processed food because we know a lot of the components of processed food are like emulsifiers, sweeteners, etc., are really bad uh, on the uh, microbiome. We know that. Um, uh, antibiotics, you know, need to be minimized as much as possible. Um, there's a huge increase in the amount of, of, of people born by C-section, many of it for non-medically um, medically indicated reasons. And uh, so C-section automatically changes the trajectory of where uh, of the microbiome in early life. Uh, supporting breastfeeding is really important, especially in the UK and Ireland, where we have relatively low uh, breastfeeding rates. Um, and then having a pet is, has been shown in a large number of studies now to increase uh, the diversity uh, of the microbiome, and, and, and that's quite good. We should also try and have good sleep. Uh, sleep microbiome, circadian rhythm, microbiome interactions are we're, 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 the field is now beginning to wake up to this. And uh, exercise has been shown, especially aerobic exercise, has been shown to have beneficial effects on the diversity of the microbiome. So they're the kind of the things that people can look at themselves and 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 try and, and look at, uh, you know, especially you know if they're going to go through some stressful situations, whether it's having exams or doing interviews or, or traveling a lot you know there are things there that that might be of use yeah john it's, it's just incredible for me to hear you know yourself one of the top researchers probably in the world in this field um talking about the, the importance of all these various lifestyle factors that you know i've been trying to talk about for years put in my my book the four pillar plan which is the importance of food movement sleep and relaxation and i sort of do in the book sort of weave together how those things all can actually impact our microbiome. It's not just the food that we eat. Exactly, and I, 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 I really think your four pillars are could be very much underpinned by a, a foundation of what the, what the microbiome is doing to, to to the body as well. I think it's really a, 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 a good way of linking all of them together. Yeah, um, you mentioned processed food, John, and the, some of the emulsifiers. So, I wonder if we could just briefly touch on. You know, something that a lot of people often put on my social media channels, you know, how bad is sugar for the gut uh, per se? And then a follow up question would be how bad do we think sweeteners and artificial sweeteners such as those found in diet drinks might be? So the, a lot of the data still is only in animal studies. So so we know that uh, artificial sweeteners are quite perniciously bad for the microbes. Uh, there's been a, a number of studies from uh, the U.S. showing that. Uh, even worse than sugar, per se. 
and sugar has its own downsides on things, but but sweeteners seem to be pretty bad. So that's one thing. Um, and the emulsifiers really have been shown to be not good as well. And then there's a lot of components in processed food that have never been tested to see what they're doing uh, to the microbiome in general. And, and we have a lot of environmental factors that are also negatively uh, influencing uh, the microbiome. And so uh, it's important that we understand that our microbiomes exist within us, but they exist within us in, in, in an ecosystem like any ecosystem that can have uh, basically uh, insults to it uh, at any time that, that will upset it and uh, allow it to go out of kilter. Do we know yet whether sugar per se, just sugar in itself, not in the context of a fizzy drink, um, but whether sugar per se has a negative impact on our, on our gut health? See, I, I, I don't think the studies have been properly done in humans yet. There are some studies in animals, um, but the, the question in animals is always about dose. So, yeah. um, and a lot of the sugar doesn't get to the acts uh, before it gets to, 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 to in contact with microbes. So uh, it's, it's chemically used by the body in, di in different ways. But what we do know, and you alluded to this earlier, is there's a very tight relationship between microbes and uh, um, uh, glucose uh, uh, homeostasis within the body in general. And these are tightly linked. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's not surprising that sugar will have an effect. Yeah. Salt is the other thing. People have looked at salt and the impact that salt has on the microbiome, and there's lots of data on that. And perhaps one of the most surprising things that I didn't mention the, about the microbiome, but it's also really important that at least a quarter of all of the drugs that you prescribe um, uh, in uh, your practice, uh, a quarter of them will have negative effects on the microbiome. Wow. So 25% of the drugs that I might prescribe will yep. have a negative impact on the microbiome. And, yeah. and we're probably not even talking about that. Also, there's really exciting work in the oncology field, but also in, in the metabolic field, showing that the efficacy of certain drugs depends on an individual's microbiome. For example, checkpoint inhibitors in cancer therapy, that if you had a certain microbiome, you were more likely to respond to this type of drug. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I guess that the flip side to a, to a quarter of the drugs having a negative impact on the microbiome is... That I think I read some research where you know one of the most commonly prescribed type two diabetic drugs, which is called metformin. Metformin, I believe, appears to have a positive effect on the microbiome and increases the growth of a bug called Acamantia mucinophilia, which we know helps with blood sugar regulation. Is, is, is that is that the case? Are there are there any other drugs that you know of? That is exactly the case, and, and uh, the, the metformin data is really exciting because it's telling us that we need to understand how drugs are interacting with not just the, their main targets in the body, but also in the microbiome. We've shown, for example, that antipsychotic medications, uh, as well as some antidepressants, can have direct effects on the microbiome, and that some of the side effects of these drugs could be driven by their changes in the microbiome. So perhaps in the future, when you're giving a drug that is really beneficial for the patient, that there might be a, 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 a probiotic or, or a psychobiotic drink to go with it to prevent some of the side effects. John, it's just so fascinating. I know we've only got a few minutes left on this call before your next meeting, so I'll try and just quick fire a few more things. There's so much more we could talk about. But one thing that often comes up is we talk about the negative things in the modern world that can damage our microbiomes, whether it's highly processed foods, sweeteners, emulsifiers, having too many antibiotics, particularly in childhoods, um, being born by a cesarean section. You know, a lot of these things, people might be listening 
and thinking, well, okay, I can change my diet, but you know, I was born by C-section. I can't do anything about that. I was given a ton of antibiotics when I was a kid because I kept having ear infections. And, and often people can get quite down when they hear that. You know, do we know, you know, as the research stands, you know, yes, the early years are very important. And, you know, yes, going forward, we'd like to change society's approach to various things, you know, like using C-sections when they're only absolutely necessary rather than, you know, you know, when they're not, for, for example. But, you know, for people who have had, let's say, a rough roll of the dice with their microbiomes, are you optimistic that there are plenty of things that they can still do to optimize their gut health? Oh, absolutely. I think this is not a, you know, a fait accompli that, that, that something happens in early life and, and then you're, you're driven on this trajectory. It's just one of the key factors. It's all about relative risks and relative situations. We, we're very confident that uh, by targeting the microbiome, we could actually override some of the miswiring that may have occurred in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of the circuits underpinning our stress response, for example. And that's where we think the whole field of psychobiotics could come in to play. We don't need to know what's causing the, the changes in, in brain function to actually target it with um, potential uh, bacteria. So I'm very confident that by improving your individual gut health and whatever that means for you, because there's going to be the individual aspect to that, um, you have the potential then to actually uh, improve your brain health. Wow. Incredible, John, to, to leave people with that thought. And just to reiterate, John was saying that on the do list, he was talking a lot about diversity, about the difference. Uh, different fibers of different foods that you can have that you would typically get in a, in a diverse Mediterranean diet. You know, guys, you've heard me talk about eat the rainbow before. All these different colors have got lots of different polyphenols, lots of different components that are going to help you improve your gut health. But you also mentioned fermented foods. Um, John, final question then. In all your years of research on the gut microbiome, have you, given what you have learned, changed things to do with your own personal health based upon your research? I'm often half that question, Rangan. So it, it, it's interesting. I, I think I have more subconsciously than consciously. So I do try and increase my uh, uh, fiber intake and definitely increase the diversity of, of the diet that I have. I'm more aware. It's more about an awareness. Um, and uh, I think that's probably, you know, one of the things. But I'm not the most stress sensitive person, so I can deal with stress uh, pretty okay, generally. Um, but I, I think that um, as I get older, I think I will be putting much more focus on it. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, we have a lot of sense of, as I mentioned, empowerment within ourselves that we can actually make changes in our lifestyle that we know will positively affect our microbiome and our gut health, and that that could have positive effects on how our brain is. John, I've got to say, it's been it's been such a huge pleasure for me to spend nearly an hour chatting to you. I'm you know, a huge fan of the research you're doing. I, I, you know, I hope your lab continues to do such great research because it helps guide, you know, in the trenches, clinicians like me, it helps us understand how we can help our patients. So I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank you because the research you do really, really matters and it, and it helps the lives of thousands of people. So, you know, a huge thank you to you, but also to your team as well. John, thanks for your time today. Guys, I really encourage you to check out John's book, The Psychobiotic Revolution. And John, there's so much more we could speak about. So maybe we'll get you back for another episode in the next few months. But uh, thank you so much for joining me. 
No, my my pleasure, Rangan. Thank you, and uh, it was a really enjoyable uh, chat. And it's always good to talk to someone so informed. That concludes the latest conversation on my Feel Better, Live More podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do take a screenshot of this page on your phone right now and post it on social media. Please do tag me on Instagram, Instagram stories, Facebook and Twitter. And please do use the hashtag feel better, live more. There's lots of information on gut health in my best-selling book, The Four Pillar Plan, where I show you what foods you can eat to help improve your gut health, but also how physical activity, sleep, but also managing your stress levels can also improve the health of your gut. If you've not got a copy yet, please do check it out. For those of you who live in the USA or Canada, that book is now available with a brand new title, How to Make Disease Disappear. I want this podcast to help transform the health of as many people as possible. So if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, that also helps me spread this message further. I'm always open to more suggestions. So again, please let me know on social media if you've got any more suggestions on people you would like to see me interview on this podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you can join me next time.